from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the CER podcast. I'm Sander Todoir, Senior Research Fellow at the Center for European Reform. And today I'm joined by our Deputy Director, John Springford and Brad Setzer, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, to talk about industrial policy and de-risking from China. Brad works for the Biden administration and is a leading expert in DC on international trade, capital flows, and macroeconomic policy. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Just as a, as a way of introduction, Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, Chinese support for Putin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine have put de-risking, especially from China, as well as green tech industrial policy at the forefront of many policymakers' minds on both sides of the Atlantic. If you look at solar panels, lithium batteries for electric cars, and rare earth materials that are a key input to many green techs. There's a lot of dependence on China, and that's leading to policy changes. It also seems as though the US and China have become less friendly to open markets and international rules, and it looks increasingly like the EU is following suit. President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, gave a seminal speech before her visit to Beijing, where she highlighted the need for de-risking rather than decoupling from China, and that was echoed by U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan in a major policy speech a month later. French President Macron has talked a lot about strategic autonomy and third powers, though he isn't always keen to follow the U.S.'s lead on China. Others in Europe, in the meantime, are more skeptical. So to Brad, it seems like Jake Sullivan and Ursula von der Leyen have been moderating their rhetoric a little on China, focusing on de-risking rather than decoupling. Do you think that's right? Or is the US still keen to reduce China's weight in supply chains of semiconductors, chips, green tech, and so forth, and the transfer of technology to them? Or perhaps does the Biden administration consider that its mission accomplished, its legislation is in place, and we're now moving to an implementation stage? How, how do you see the landscape? Well, I think underlying speech came up with a better, a more accurate term for describing U.S. policy, as well as a term that could generate much more consensus within Europe and across the Atlantic. So I think she did a great service by focusing the debate on de-risking rather than decoupling. Decoupling, to me, implies a desire to reduce all trade to zero. It may take time, but a full decoupling would be something that occurs across the board. De-risking to me is a policy that focuses on specific risks, specific sectors, and may have the effect of reducing trade in those sectors or reducing dependence in those sectors, but it doesn't aim for an across-the-board reduction of trade. Clearly, the Biden administration is in an implementation phase with the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act. Almost by necessity, the legislative phase of the Biden's first term ended with the midterm elections and the Republicans seizing control of the House. So further legislation is blocked and all 
the focus is clearly on implementation. You know, from the U.S. point of view, I think the the goal in some sectors was to reduce dependence on a Chinese supply chain. In some ways, it's not to reduce dependence; it's to assure that the transition to cleaner energy technologies doesn't create a new dependence. If your goal is to enormously increase the use of electric vehicles, you're going to be substituting batteries for internal combustion engines on a big scale, and you wouldn't want necessarily to substitute domestic or North American or European-made internal combustion engines with Chinese batteries or batteries that fully rely on a sinocentric supply chain. And I think that same desire was apparent on a broader set of products where there was a concern that the transition to clean energy, particularly for the U.S., we have abundant supplies of natural gas, coal, of fossil fuels, that the transition to cleaner energy sources could result in an increase in dependence on China in the absence of sort of fairly strong measures to encourage some mix of North American or non-Chinese production, depending on the sector. That said, I think it is fair to note that even the incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act may not be enough to alter patterns of production that are centered around China and the solar industry. You may have to do even more. But for now, the focus is clearly on implementation. Right. Before we move to Europe, can you give us a sense of the scale of the Inflation Reduction Act? The interesting thing about the Inflation Reduction Act is that it's not limited in dollar terms. It's a sort of a per kilowatt hour or something support for certain technologies as a per car support. So there's no upper cap. But I think the estimates of the annual scale as a share of US GDP start at 0.3 percentage points of US GDP and go up to 0.5, 0.6 percent of GDP, depending on how rapidly clean energy production scales up. It is big, but it is within the realm of fiscally reasonable, in my view. Now, caught between the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act and the sizable scale of it and China's more long-standing generous subsidies for domestic manufacturing, the EU is quite nervous about losing the green tech race. In our recent paper, John, we outlined that the EU is actually doing relatively well in green tech manufacturing up until the early innings of the IRA. If you look at 220 low-carbon technology products that are traded, China's share of the global market has exploded from 23 to 34%. But Europe has also grown from 19 to 23. And the US is sort of languishing at 13%. Again, this is before the IRA really, really hit the economy. But uh, John, how worried should we be about Europe and losing its share and, and maybe losing out to the US and China? Well, I think some of the you know, actual genuine anger that you saw from European policymakers was, you know, it was overdone, but there was some justification for it because of the location requirements, particularly in EVs and EVs batteries and the supplies that go into those manufacturing processes, that those location requirements are in breach of WTO rules and the principle really of non-discrimination that underpins the WTO. So, you know, it was understandable that there was a reaction. I think the panic has been a bit overblown, not least because of the point that you make, Sonda, which is that in many respects, Europe 
I always think saying you're ahead or behind is not a helpful way to talk about this, but Europe has generally a larger manufacturing sector and a more export-oriented manufacturing sector than the United States. And it's further along, if we're just thinking about what the whole point of this is, apart from some of the geopolitical risks with China, the point of this is to accelerate the energy transition. And Europe is just ahead on that. It's had carbon pricing for quite a long time. Its emissions per capita, half those of the US. And our paper also just thought about, okay, what are the risks of a whole bunch of European manufacturers going, right, we're not going to produce in Europe. We're going to go to the US, take advantage of IRA tax credits, and then export from the US to Europe. And the reason why that's quite unlikely is because the cost of shipping quite heavy kit around is fairly substantial. If you're doing shipping some massive thing like a wind turbine that is incredibly expensive, then maybe you're willing to follow some of the shipping costs of transporting it across an ocean. But with mass market things like EVs, then the cost of transport are going to eat into your margin compared to somebody that's closer to the consumer. And we found using a fairly bog standard gravity model, really, that EVs and batteries and heat pumps and solar, then the effective distance on trade has been growing. We measured it from 2019 to 2022, and it it has been growing. It's more than doubled in some cases, which suggests that as markets develop and become more mature and there's more competition, then these things like shipping costs do make a difference and companies are going to be looking to locate their production nearer to consumers. That means that Europe shouldn't be too concerned, I think, that US subsidies will lead to divestment from Europe and supply of Europeans from the United States. And the other point to make, I think, is that Europe's manufacturing sector is quite efficient and innovative. It's especially good at process innovation. And despite the fact that it's got a fair bit larger manufacturing sector as a share of GDP than the US, its productivity in manufacturing is around the same. So it's just as competitive as the United States, possibly more so given the fact that it does more manufacturing and yet retains the same level of productivity. And the single market is a big part of that. And I'm sure we'll come on to it, Sandra, but there are some real risks from Europe going down the same route as the United States, because it's likely to be France, Germany, the Netherlands, the bigger, richer countries that are more likely to be able to follow the US down the subsidy race. Thanks. Yeah. So in a sense, Brad, I think our paper was a bit myth-busting in that it sort of undergirded the contrarian case against the broad subsidy push that the US is doing for Europe. But just to complement what John said, so we did see a few markets where you see real concern more from China than the US. For example, in wind turbines, Europe did well for a long time. Our market share is dropping rapidly. China's is rapidly increasing. There are lots of wind companies that are issuing profit warnings in Europe. And so there seems to be an issue. There's also an issue with, as John mentioned, electrolyzers, which you need for green hydrogen. It's a sort of infant industry, and there doesn't seem to be much penalty to trade from distance. And so there, Europe may benefit a bit from aligning with the US. But you have also been publicizing that there's a Chinese auto shock that is going to hit Europe because any chart you look, as you say, that has Chinese auto exports is basically a hockey stick. Does our paper give you pause in that analysis? What's your reaction to that? 
Well, I think it reminded me that Europe is in a somewhat different position than the U.S. for the reasons that you outlined in your paper. I mean, in the U.S. Uh, Inflation Reduction Act, in some sense, is a, a reflection of a realization that the U.S. was not only behind Europe, but was well behind China. And that without the judgment of the authors of the Inflation Reduction Act was that without some element of discrimination built into the structure of the incentives, the U.S. incentives for clean energy and for electric vehicles would reinforce European and Chinese dominance. Obviously, there was much more concern about Chinese dominance. So I completely agree with the conclusions that emerge from your analysis that Europe is starting from a stronger base. And if you start from a stronger base, you may not need to apply the precise tools that the U.S. is deploying to try to catch up. And I also agree with the general observation that in many technologies, not all technologies, there's an advantage to being in the local market. And most production ultimately will migrate to being relatively close to the consumer. But I share the concerns that you outlined about wind. I think European wind companies are in a weaker financial position, have been losing market share. And there is at least a theoretical concern that they may no longer be able to make the new investments needed to remain at the frontier, which would be a loss to Europe and a loss to the U.S. I mean, the U.S. also relies quite heavily on European companies that have localized production of wind turbines in the United States. And certainly the hope is that an offshore wind, where Europe clearly leads the U.S., the major European companies will set up production bases in the U.S. in hard to ship a big turbine. Uh, but it will rely heavily on components that come from Europe. There is a concern in the U.S. also that too many of the components are coming from China. I don't remember if you look specifically at component dependence, but I think that is a separate concern. With electric vehicles, frankly, I think Europe should be a little bit concerned, not just with the strength that China is displaying in export markets, but also with the strength that Chinese electric vehicle producers are displaying inside China, which to some degree is going to come at the expense both of European companies producing in China, but also European companies producing cars for sale to meet luxury demand in China. Europe is just more exposed than the U.S. to China's success as an electric vehicle exporter because Europe itself has a bigger industry and is a bigger export sector. The U.S. EV market, U.S. auto market is in many ways quite segmented from the global market. We have a strong consumer preference for larger cars, for SUVs, which are really not likely to find a market outside the United States, whereas Europe's traditionally produced cars for European producers producing in Europe have made cars for sale in Europe, but also to meet global demand. And increasingly, Chinese EVs are meeting global demand, meeting European demand. There's a hockey stick in Chinese exports specifically to Europe. And I think it is a fair question to ask whether the same medicine that China used to create its own EV industry. I mean, China did not license any imported vehicle, to my knowledge, to be eligible for China's own domestic electric vehicle subsidies. You had to produce in China, you had to produce in China with a battery made in China to make their list. So it was an, an implicitly discriminatory policy. And so I think there is a question as to whether 
Europe might be better served, despite be less than fully compliant with all of its WTO commitments, if it embraced by European requirements on electric vehicles, which would create greater symmetry between European policy, Chinese policy, and now US policy. That's a really uncomfortable decision for European policymakers. But I do think it is the kind of measure that warrants consideration. Obviously, the French are also thinking about a more classic trade case, which would probably be in some ways more brutal, but it would also more clearly fit within the four corners of the WTO. Thanks a lot. This is something we also saw in the data. If you look at electric vehicle exports, Europe has long imported a lot of electric vehicles because there was a lot of demand and government support to electrify. It's starting to become a net exporter to many places except China. Exports to China of electric vehicles are flat. Even the US, which I looked at last week, exports are growing quite healthily and Germany seems to be a very strong factor. Let me just uh, chime in with one additional point, which is that Mercedes and BMW are generally now producing at a price point, both for their conventional cars and their uh, electric cars, where they wouldn't be eligible for the Inflation Reduction Act subsidies. So in a sense, for the luxury car market, there is a level playing field because there are no subsidies for domestic-made EVs above a certain price point. Right, right, interesting. Doesn't seem to work in China, nonetheless. Still flat. John, Europe hasn't sat still. It's trying to revamp its industrial policy. Brad made some suggestions on having perhaps also uncomfortable discussions in Europe. There's already been a move to relax curbs on state aids, but Europe can clearly not match the tax credits of the Inflation Reduction Act, nor the sort of largesse of China's support for domestic manufacturers. Is that a problem? How should Europe conduct industrial policy with the tools it does have? The EU leaders are meeting on Friday to discuss inward and outward investment screening to and from China and other places. How do you see that? Is that a promising avenue to move down? Well, on the question about matching subsidies, just thinking about subsidies generally, not necessarily explicit ones, which have now been allowed under tweaks to the state aid rules. I mean, there's billions already being earmarked, especially, but not only by Germany or France, as incentives for chip manufacturing, for the cars and for battery plants. And, you know, most of these don't take the form of tax credits because that's a bit harder to do, although some of the matching subsidies may do that. So we are talking about agreements to help fund the building of factories and capital expenditure rather than the ongoing operating expenditure of companies in the main. So that means they're less immediate than the tax credits under the IRA. And we won't necessarily see the incredibly dramatic effects that the IRA appears to have had on manufacturing output in the United States. But it will determine the location of plants. And there are some problems here because this is largely a national thing, not a European thing. And the consequences of that will mean that there will be some interruptions to the principles of comparative advantage in manufacturing, because subsidies will lead to the relocation of plants away from where a sort of standard analysis of comparative advantage would would assume that they would be built. And so we don't know how much, but that is likely to undermine the single market because richer countries are going to be able to do more of it. And one of the things that's been happening over the last 20 years is Central and Eastern Europe has integrated with Western Europe through the single market is that 
a kind of center of gravity for industrial Europe has moved east with Germany at its center and then Poland, Hungary, Czechia, Slovakia, Romania and Bulgaria increasingly being brought into manufacturing supply chains. And, you know, that's to take advantage of lower labor and, and land costs. But it's also provided an incredibly successful industrialization opportunity for these countries. And for many of them, their GDP per capita purchasing power base is approaching European average, which is just a remarkable success. So there are risks here, both political and economic. In terms of the tools that Europe has and whether it needs to be more aggressive towards China, I agree with Brad that it seems like a good idea to a certain extent meet fire with fire with China. And I would have no problem really with a kind of bi-European principle that if you're going to get consumer subsidy for an EV, then why should the European taxpayer subsidize, already subsidized Chinese and US production? It would obviously be better, I think, if this was coordinated between the US, Europe and the other Western allies. But I think that's probably a step too far. But I wouldn't necessarily have a problem with that. But in terms of inward and outbound investment screening, the tools that Europe has already is just that member states must keep an eye on inward investment and then flag where there are potential risks. So, you know, China is taking over a key part of infrastructure, such as 5G infrastructure or something like that. Then they have to report that and report it to the Commission. The hope is that transparency will provide some sort of constraint on China entering the European market, particularly in really sort of sensitive areas. But Chinese battery players are are building plants in Europe, and it seems as though the member states are perfectly fine with that, in fact, keen on it, because it creates jobs and manufacturing capacity and so forth. So I wouldn't go too far on the inward investment screening that we're likely to see any sort of really big attempts to try and cut China out. And on outbound investment, this is quite intrusive. I mean, if you're saying, okay, BW, we're going to start interfering in your decisions to go and invest in China, then that is going to be an unusual, a new step and fairly interventionist step by government. So I think that there will be a fair amount of resistance to that too. Obviously, the main issue here is advanced chips and the US has put pressure on ASML and the Dutch government to try and prevent the most advanced chips from going to China, which is largely been agreed to, or in fact has been agreed to by the Dutch government. And I think it seems as though the politics of this is moving in Europe. So there will be more attempts to try and prevent some of the most advanced technology, particularly that which could be used for surveillance and military care from going to China. But I wouldn't go too far on outward investment screening leading to a huge effect in terms of the transfer of technology to China. What would your sense be, Brad, on this outward investment screening at the European level or coordinated nationally within the EU? I think the U.S. approach, which will be formally laid out relatively soon if recent signals are accurate, but it's been coming for a long time, will also be pretty narrow. I mean, it'll be focused on chips, artificial intelligence, a few other sectors. And I think particularly with outward investment, where there's a concern that the outward investment would lead to technology transfer that raises Chinese capabilities to a level that poses a threat. 
I would certainly hope there's a high level of coordination. And I think all the signs suggest to date that at least informally with the key countries that are involved, there's a high level of convergence for now. As the U.S. moves further, that high level of convergence may dissipate. But for now, so good. I would also just add on one of the points that John made that I think it actually would be easier for the G7 to coordinate if Europe and Japan adopted bi-European and bi-Japanese provisions and then extended them to their free trade agreement partners, which would leave out the U.S. and leave out China. And then the G7 could reach an agreement that allowed reciprocal access to each other's EV subsidies, I think, relatively easily. I think that would be, in some sense, easier for the U.S. to accept than allowing Europeans access to U.S. subsidies, even if European cars have a high embedded level of Chinese content. Convergence in policy there might also lead to liberalization amongst friends, but that would require going back to Congress and getting explicit changes to the law. But I don't rule out that as a possible equilibrium outcome. And I think there is a little bit of an irony in the sense that the production subsidies, you know, the state aid and European parlance that are now often being considered, they're certainly part of the CHIPS Act, they're to some degree part of the Inflation Reduction Act. Those are broadly speaking WTO compliant, but they do raise questions about distorting internal competition within Europe. A uniform by European provision adopted by all national governments for any clean technology, which is just a straightforward consumer subsidy, if that is restricted to Europeans, is a discriminatory provision that raises a lot of WTO concerns, but need not distort the single market. So there's just a, an intrinsic trade-off when you start thinking seriously about these kinds of incentives. But I don't rule out that Europe has the fiscal capacity to essentially replicate parts of the Inflation Reduction Act. Europe is not that different on most fiscal measures from the U.S. The difficulty is that fiscal capacity is at the member states is not at the European level. Yeah, I think that's completely right. That's to John's earlier point that in many respects, the EU industrial strategy was supposed to have two legs. One was looser state aid in European parlance, aka subsidies. The other leg was to pull some of Europe's sizable common fiscal space, conceived as such, to help the weaker countries. And that second pillar seems to be faltering. The Commission came out with the proposal for a sovereignty fund, which contains 10 billion euros in foreseen fresh money, which they then, via magical bookkeeping tricks and assumed outrageous private sector multipliers, say is 160 billion, but really it's 10, and maybe there's a bit of multiplication, and it may not even survive negotiations with the member states. And so that's clearly a risk for the Europeans to undermine the single market. But do the two of you also see broader risks of de-risking? So the risks of de-risking, for example, biasing in favor of incumbent firms that may not actually be all that innovative or productive. Intel comes to mind. Intel is getting big subsidies in Germany and Israel in the U.S. to build semiconductor plants. But it's a company that has languished quite far behind, let's say, in NVIDIA. So Ford, which was struggling to keep up with electric vehicles, is getting subsidies. The same with some of the German companies. Is that bad for competition and markets? And the other question I have a bit is, will companies maybe overreact? So if there is some screening of their investments, might they take it too far for fear of 
regulation that may not even be there. So sort of how do you see the general balance of this policy direction that both sides of the Atlantic seem to be moving into? I think the point that Brad made earlier is the key one, that if the aim is de-risking rather than onshoring or decoupling, there's so many of these terms that get trotted out, but if the aim is to de-risk trade relationships with another country, then the way to avoid the potential risks to de-risking is to try and keep the number of goods and sectors that you're dealing with, that you're genuinely trying to de-risk, fairly circumscribed to those sectors where there are genuine potential risks to allowing China to have access to this technology, one, or that you create some sort of dependent that provides China with some power over you. And so if you were thinking about what those might be, then obviously advanced chips and AI make a lot of sense. And I guess wind turbines and solar power do too, because Europe has just had an energy dependence on Russia, which has been pretty expensive and chaotic to end after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And so it does make sense to try and prevent China from having the same kind of whip hands that Russia had over Europe by trying to reduce Europe's dependence on China for those key energy goods for the transition. But it's going to be difficult. I mean, if we think about chips, for example, the EU is spending about 40 billion altogether in member states, and the EU is spending about 40 billion on trying to raise the EU's domestic production of chips from 10% of chip consumption to 20%. And that's not going to reduce the risk that Europe faces from a war in Asia, you know, China invades Taiwan, that's going to interrupt chip supply chains massively and cause all sorts of problems across the European manufacturing sector. So it's very difficult to do this entirely. Spending that sort of money in order to try and prevent China from having access to the newer forms of chip production, I guess is possible, although Europe has fallen quite a long way behind in chip manufacturing to South Korea and Taiwan and so forth. So none of this is very easy. And it's perfectly legitimate policy goal, but there are risks if you allow it to get too broad and if the subsidies required in order to drag a, a potentially unpleasant dependence from a supply chain onshore, um, the subsidies can get extremely large. So I guess I'll make a set of perhaps somewhat disconnected observations. The first observation is I agree that there's a risk of setting your de-risking policies so wide that it becomes something that's pretty close to decoupling. I also think there's a little bit of a risk of being so narrow that you don't eliminate all of your true dependencies and find yourself still vulnerable in some negative scenarios. If you start thinking carefully about how China might use the kind of sanctions that the US and Europe and Japan have used against Russia, you might end up with a slightly different set of sectors than the sectors we've ended up. To me, there's still an open question about the perimeter and where the right place to draw the lines are. And one obvious place where I think there's probably more scope to de-risk is advanced pharmaceutical ingredients. I would think that that would be the next priority. And I think that is a reasonable priority. The second observation is that there is a sort of a unique character to subsidies that distort competition around clean energy because the goal is to enhance adoption and to speed up adoption of new energy technologies. So you might otherwise say, 
Well, it would be excellent if GM was rewarded for being ahead in the EV race compared to Ford and Ford fell behind. But if that is your premise, then you'll end up in a world with less EV production and higher EV costs than you would be in a world where you accelerate Ford's adoption and total capacity increases and you move down the cost curve. So I think when you think of some of the lessons around China's EV policy and historically around China's policy around solar cells, there actually are some positive externalities for excessive subsidization of truly low carbon technology. You have to change your electricity generation sources for EVs to achieve that, but at least conceptually, there's a case for that. And then the third observation is, it is unambiguously true that there is a risk that semiconductor subsidies get excessively captured by Intel. Absolutely true. I think it would still be wise for the US, Japan, Korea to get together and sort of agree to some principles about risk sharing between firms and governments. So to make sure that firms like Intel have to put at least some of their own capital at risk in these new facilities, that there's not a full subsidy. But I think it is also the case that the decision to subsidize Intel, and NVIDIA is not really in the same game as Intel. NVIDIA is a completely dependent on TSMC for manufacturing. So for manufacturing, the key fact was that Intel was lagging TSMC and Samsung. And for the US, I think there was a judgment that it was unacceptable to have no American firm even close to the cutting edge of the frontier of semiconductor manufacturing technology. And catching up was going to take a lot of money. And that money is going to Intel, but it's also going to TSMC. And the net effect should be excessive generosity to Intel and its shareholders is one outcome. But the other outcome is that it should increase competition at the frontier of shipmaking technology, because otherwise there was a risk that in effect, there would either be a TSMC monopoly or a TSMC Samsung duopoly with both companies capturing the profits that come at the cutting edge and Intel lagging ever further behind. So it isn't obvious that the end result for consumers is going to be a bad outcome. It should be a more competitive advanced semiconductor market. But there is certainly a risk that Intel in particular becomes overly reliant on government support. Maybe I'll just add that you guys did a great paper, and I think it is important to recognize that Europe's manufacturing base for clean energy is deeper right now than that of the United States. The U.S. is the one playing catch-up. It's important to recognize that there are some advantages to localization, and the general transition to green energy in Europe, even without preferences, and we can debate whether there should be additional preferences, will intrinsically create additional demand for European green manufacturing. And the future of Europeans' green technology sector will be much more determined by European policy and the level of European demand than by the level of U.S. subsidies. And I think your paper was very helpful in pointing out Europe's strengths and reassuring Europeans that, that the U.S. is the one that really has to play the game of catch-up. You've sketched out a few avenues for Europe and the U.S to work together more, be it in the G7 context or bilaterally, and align a bit more. And, and that may actually bring benefits to both, as long as the politics don't get in the way of thinking ahead and a bit more strategically in Brussels and, and Washington, I suppose. Thanks so much, Brad and John, for joining me on this week's CR podcast. And hopefully we'll have you back again soon. Thank you also to our listeners at home. 
If you'd like to stay informed on all things Europe, subscribe to the CR wherever you get your podcasts. The link to our paper is in the notes below. Goodbye and see you next time. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.